Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. How many of you know what the lowest point in North America is? Death Valley, 282 feet below sea level is Death Valley. In July 2018, there was an average temperature of 108 degrees. That means during the day, it reached peaks of over 127, four days in a row. Uh, hottest place on earth. It's the home of the Roadrunner, by the way. How I many you remember the Roadrunner? Come on. That guy. It's the Desert Valley, Eastern California. It's in the northern part of the Mojave Desert. It borders the Great Basin Desert, and it's the hottest, most driest place in America, and hardly anything grows there at all. Um, in my exploration of this, there are a few flowers that grow in Death Valley. There's actually remnants of water below the base um, that is salt water because something to do with the, uh, the way that the climate works and the way that the rocks work. Uh, and so there's a few endangered fish, fish that are about an inch long that survive in the Death Valley, but truly hardly anything grows over there. That's why it's called the Death Valley, not the Life Valley. It's the Death Valley. So back in 2004, this phenomenon happened. In the winter of 2004, they don't really know how it happened or why it happened, but over seven inches of rain fell on Death Valley in a very short amount of time. Nothing happened immediately, but a few months later in the spring of 2005, there was this phenomenon. Beautiful. By the way, those are purple and gold flowers for those of you keeping score. Um, you know. But a few months later. So seven inches of rainfall in the winter of 2004. A few months later in the spring of 2005, all of a sudden, this huge amount of flowers. What they realized that perhaps Death Valley wasn't necessarily dead, but that it was dormant. And so scientists have taken, even in the last 20 years, trying to explain the phenomenon here. And what they realize is beneath the surface of the ground, there were actually these seeds of life that just needed to be in the right environment for great things to happen. It's an amazing thing. They needed the right temperature and the right amount of water. And if there was the right environment, all of a sudden this growth would happen. If you're following in our notes today, our environment can influence our growth. Our environment can influence our growth. Uh, this is why parents are so concerned with who our friends are as children, right? Because they all reckon, recognize and remember that verse in Corinthians that says uh, evil uh, communication corrupts good behavior, right? If you have uh, difficult or unusual or uh, evil or dangerous influences in your life, it can corrupt what good there is. And so our environment can influence our growth. In the coming weeks, we will paint for you what it looks like for our church to have the right environment. What churches try to do, what pastors try to do, what we're trying to do at this church is making sure that our church family has the right environment so that we have growth so that the best version of you springs to life. So in the next couple of weeks, we will take time and paint for you the picture of what we strive to look like. But here's, here's a preview. 
This is what we will be passionate about. This is what we will be all in about. This is what we will make sure every decision at First Christian Church will go through this lens is this. We will be a church that lives out in authentic faith, develops healthy and strong relationships, and gives every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. This is what we're going to be all in about. We're going to be people that live out in authentic faith. What does that mean? That means our faith lives and breathes outside of Sunday morning. That means when we go home at 12 o'clock, we don't leave our faith here. We take it with us because who is the church? We are the church. So we're going to be passionate about being a church family that has authentic faith. That means on Wednesday afternoon, your faith shows up. That means Thursday, your faith shows up. On Sunday, it shows up because we're gathering together. But we are going to have a faith that lives and breathes outside of Sunday morning, every day of the week. We're going to be people that develop healthy and strong relationships. You know what our community desperately needs? For our families to have healthy and strong relationships. It's for our spouses to have healthy, strong relationships with one another, with God, with our extended family, with our neighbors, with people we don't like, with people we don't agree with, with people that don't vote for us, with people that don't look like us, with people who don't dress like us, with people that aren't Laker fans, the people that are. We're going to have healthy, strong relationships with every single person. Because here's the thing, the church should be the example on that. The church should be the place where people go and say, you know what, I'm having trouble in my marriage. You know what we should do? We ought to go to First Christian Church. Because the couples there have healthy, strong relationships. You know, I'm having trouble raising my teenager. You know what we ought to do? We, we ought to go to church because they'll give us the tools. They'll give us the support. They'll give us the love. They won't judge us, but they'll love us. I was at the parking lot at Walmart this week. That's always a great beginning to any story, right, Ryan? <laughs> and I saw someone I recognized. And um, as a pastor, when I see someone I recognize and I haven't seen them in a while, it, it can be a little awkward. So I made my way so they would not miss me. And I said, hello. And she broke down. And her life has fallen apart all in the last 12 months. And we stood there in the Walmart parking lot for 20 minutes just talking. I prayed for her. And she said, you know, I really want to come back. But it's really hard. Don't you want to just give that person a hug? Because the church should be a place of healthy, strong relationships where we don't judge each other because we're going through a difficult time, but we actually say, oh, wow, that's really hard. That's difficult. Can we have coffee and talk? Can I just give you a hug? That's what the church should be. And then thirdly, we're going to give every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. We're going to give every single person the opportunity to meet Jesus. Now, as we articulate and seek to shape that culture here for this generation, it's important for us to realize that the church is not 432 Southeast Cain, but it's you and I. It's made up of people, of relationships. And as people, we are somewhere on a spiritual journey. Every one of us is somewhere on a journey, and the joy of our life is to find out where we are and then to take the next step. So here's two questions for you for the next couple weeks. Where are you? 
and what's your next step? Where are you and what's the next step? Because as followers, we are not to remain dormant as Death Valley, but when, uh, when watered appropriately, when the environment is right, we ought to have these seeds that are below the surface that actually grow and fulfill the potential God has put in us. Uh, look at this verse we're going to start out with, Psalms 92. Psalms 92 and verse 12 says this, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of God. God's people are people that will flourish. They should flourish. We shouldn't be dormant and dry, but we should flourish. So how do we find out where we are and what's the next step for each of us to take? How do we find that out? Let's look on to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this. You make known to me, read the next four words with me, the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Here's the answer to the question. God makes known to us the path of life. The psalmist says here, you will show me. um, And in your presence, there's going to be fullness of joy. When I see the path, when I know the journey, when you have shown it to me, when I start going down that path, there's going to be a fullness of joy and eternal pleasures at my hand. Now, what I have found out in pastoring and in living life is most people know that there's some kind of potential bottled up inside. Most people know that there's something called inside of them to greater things, but most of us have not been given a way to live out that plan. We don't know what it looks like to fulfill that journey. So the verses that we're going to dig deep for two weeks, this week and next week, are going to come from Ephesians. We just went through Ephesians verse by verse, but as I was reading it, I was captivated by verse 17 and 18. In 17 and 18 is uh, the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church. Now, we know that Paul was a church planner. He planted churches all over the world at the time. Um, he was in prison when he wrote this, so you can imagine that this is one of the prayers that he had for the church in prison. In Scripture, word for word, we don't really get a whole lot of prayers. We hear about people praying a lot. Uh, The Psalms are filled with a lot of prayers from David. But in the New Testament, after the church is formed, we don't hear a lot of word for word prayers. We do hear in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's look at verse 17. He says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. Look back at verse 17. Uh, Let's actually read this verse together, okay? Ready, begin. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What are those first three words in that verse again? I keep asking. That sounds like something a kid would say, right? I keep asking. I keep asking. There's this... um, Uh, Paul could have uh, articulated this prayer in any number of ways. But there's kind of a desperate faithfulness here, isn't there? There's kind of a, uh, there's a persistence. There's this, 
there's this attitude from Paul where he's like, this is the one thing I just, I just keep asking you, asking God. It reminds me of my mom's kind of prayers. How many of you had a mama or a papa that prayed for you just constantly? My mom, um, my mom would pray, pray, pray. She was the mom of four um, kids. I was the baby of the family, no surprise to anyone. And we grew up hearing the prayers of my mom. Most of them were in a language we barely understood. My mom, uh, my mom and dad, uh, I was born in India, grew up in Southern California, so English is my primary language. My parents had to learn English in 1980 when they came to America. And so their primary language was Telugu. And so in the home, we heard a lot of Telugu and we heard a lot of English. But when they would pray, when they would use their mother tongue, it would be in Telugu and they would just pray. They would pray. My, I can, I can, if I close my eyes, I can picture the house on Bishop Avenue in Santa Ana, California, the little small, small uh, apartment that we used to live in. Um, and my mom would sit there and she would uh, have her legs crossed. Uh, my mom was a sari every single day of the week and she would uh, have her sari and in Indian culture, it's, it's uh, polite, it's honoring to cover your head while you prayed, while you worshipped even. And so I can picture my mom just grabbing her, her, the, uh, the tip of her sari and just covering her head with it and just praying there for us. And she would just pray for our family. She'd pray for my dad and then she'd just go through the, the list of our kids. And how many of you know, the older you get, the prayers just get longer and longer and longer. <laughs> and so she'd then start praying for my brother and then his two kids, my niece and my nephew. You know, when, when Libby and I got married, um, of course, they started praying for Libby and John and Sarah, my in-laws, and then their family, and she would just pray and pray and pray. When I go home on vacation and I hang out with my family or with my cousins, there's multiple nights. I'll come home late at night, uh, you know, 8, 9 o'clock, because I like to get to bed early. But um, and when I get back to my parents' house, they'll be there in the living room, and they're just praying. Because that's, that's just what they do. So when I hear Paul saying, I just keep asking. This is the prayer I think of. I want to encourage you parents for just a moment to just keep praying. Just keep asking. God answers those prayers in you unusual and very specific ways. Paul just kind of says, I just, I keep asking God. I just, I keep praying. At the end of Ephesians, remember that last part? He says, I want you to pray all kinds of prayers and at all times. Just keep praying all kinds of prayers. That's what I remember when I read verse 17 now, embedded in Paul's prayer are four steps of the spiritual journey. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these four steps of this journey. And next week, I'm going to ask each of you to identify where you are and what's the next step. This is going to be a highly, highly up-in-your-face kind of series. We're going to lay out the first two steps this week. We'll lay out the next two steps next week. But here are the four steps. He says this. Here's the four steps of the spiritual journey. First, to know God. Second, to find freedom. Three, to discover purpose. And then four, make a difference. Say those with me. Step one is what? To know God. 
Step two is to find freedom. Step three is to discover purpose. And then step four is to what? This is the spiritual journey. When God calls us into his family, we enter into this journey starting in step one. Now, what happens, what's unusual, what's interesting for us is in the course of our lifetime, sometimes we go back and we repeat steps, right? How many of you are struggling with something today that you thought you had freedom from 10 years ago? Anybody? I know I am. I still get jealous. I still get angry. I still get fearful, right? So there are times in our life where we go through these steps and, and maybe we, we get to the last one and we just continue making a difference for a while, but then something will happen in our life. There'll be a life event. There'll be an addition to the family. There'll be a loss in the family. There'll be something that happens in your life or in your career, and for some reason it jolts your life and all of a sudden you find yourself in a new step. And yourself, you know what? I don't know God like I thought I did. And we revisit the step because it's part of the spiritual journey. So for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about knowing God and finding freedom. Here's the thing about the four steps. Having a map is only as good as knowing where you are in the first place. Am I right? We had to make an unexpected trip to Portland this week. Um, and there's, you know, when you make an unexpected, you got to make sure the fuel is, the, the, the car is fueled. Um, that's three hours. I got to have a snack. I mean, I can't go three hours without eating. Uh, so let me make sure she packs some snacks for me. We had water in the car. We thought we had everything you know. You know, the last thing we even considered was a map. Because as soon as we got into the car, we just said, okay, this is where we're going. And then we just put the map. I think sometimes we take a map for granted. I remember delivering things and man, it's going to feel like a long time ago. Like 18 years ago, 15 years ago for work, and you would have to print out directions. Like, this is the most dangerous thing we ask drivers to do before phones, is to read printed directions and to calculate 0.35 miles away. Who knows how to do that, right? And you'd print those directions and you got to figure it out. I'll go even back further. I remember as a kid, 16 years old, 17 years old, picking up one of my uncles from India, Uncle Timothy. And my dad just handed me the Thomas Guidebook map. How many of you know what a Thomas map guide looks like? It's ridiculous. What are we doing? It's like, it's like if you had a map of, um, of Orange County that plastered our wall, and then someone cut them in 12-inch pages, and then put a book together and said, here's your map. It was the most ludicrous thing. I eventually found where LAX was. But having a map is only as good as knowing where you are in the first place. You have to know where you are in the first place so then you can know where you're going. And so many of us in our life get caught up, well, well, this is where I'm going, right? This, you sit down with any financial advisor and say, man, I want to retire. And he's going to ask you, well, how much money do you have now, right? You have to know where you are in the first place in order to know how to get to where you're going. So much of what we're going to talk about in the next two weeks is this, clearing your mind of everything that you think you know about your faith and to say, where am I really? Am I at a new stage in my life or am I at a stage in my life that I thought I was already past or do I need to start over? Where am I? Because having this map, having these steps of the journey is only as good as knowing where you are in the first place. So where are you and what's the next step? 
Those are the two questions we're going to focus on. Where are you? What's the next step? So first things first, to know God. Look at Ephesians 1 again, verse 17. He says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Read that last phrase with me. So that you may... Well, that's the goal, guys, to know him. To know him. Now, that doesn't surprise anyone when we say, when someone says in church, well, hey, here's the thing, we're going to try to get to know God better. It doesn't surprise anyone, but it would have surprised the people that Paul was talking about. Paul is using a word here, it's called gnosko in the Greek. It literally means to know God in an intimate, personal way. Now, we talk about that all the time. We talk about the fact that you should have a personal relationship with God. The culture in Ephesians, in Ephesus, would not have understood what that meant. They were distant from their gods. This is why we had the law, because we couldn't just have a personal relationship with God. We had to have all these laws and rules and regulations. And in Ephesus specifically, they had the goddess Diana. You didn't have a personal relationship with Diana. You offered things to her. You, you worshipped her through all these rules and regulations and sacrifices and abhorrent, ab, uh, really evil, abhorrent behavior. But that was the relationship they had with God. It was a rules-based, traditions-based relationship. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying, man... If you could only get past that, I keep asking that the God, that God would allow you to know him better. That you would get wisdom and revelation so that you would actually know him in a real, in a personal way. You see, it's not about having a bunch of information about God, but rather having a personal, intimate relationship with him. To know him. This is an intimate phrase. Paul's idea audience uh, his audience probably responded this way I didn't know we could do that that's possible to have a relationship to know him Uh, look at Matthew chapter 7 it's there in your notes it'll be on the screen Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 says this we don't uh, not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven that's a scary thought isn't it Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Those are pretty good things, aren't they? Man, if we had a church service where I drove out a couple of demons and performed a couple of miracles... We'd say, my goodness, that was a service. Did you see what happened in downtown Roseburg? Look at how he responds. I'll tell them plainly, I never, what's that word? I never knew you. It was the people in the crowd who were in love with Jesus that, uh, that, that, that he was talking about. The word says here that uh, not everyone who uh, says Lord, Lord is going to enter into the kingdom. And he says, because I never knew you. That word there is the same word Paul uses in Ephesians, gnosko. I never knew you in a personal, intimate way. So, first things first, Paul says the first thing you got to do is know God. So let me ask you, your knowledge of who God is. In fact, let's do this. Homework this week. I want you to write down what you know about God. 
Take a few moments to yourself in your personal devotions and just say, this is what I know to be true about God. God is blank. Maybe for some of you, you have, uh, like me, you, you came to Christ at an early age and, and, um, and you were saved and baptized at an early age. You went to church since before you were born in the womb. Um, and maybe for you, this is your opportunity to say, um, I'm going to get to know God now. I've known about him. I know all this information about him. But I want to know him in a real, in a personal, intimate way. Paul says this, man, I pray that you would know him better. This is the first step to know God. The second step is this, to find freedom. To find freedom. Uh, Look at verse 18. He says this. We sang the words of the song earlier, open the eyes of my heart. This is the scripture where that song comes from. Ephesians 1 says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It paints the picture of knowing God and then being, having your eyes open so that you find freedom beyond the captivity of your sin, your guilt, and your shame of the moment. The eyes of your heart. Now, the first thing you might say is, Daniel, our heart does not have eyes. And you'd be correct. Uh, Paul's painting a picture here, what he often does. Paul's pretty poetic. But what he's saying is this. Every single one of us views life not only through the eyes of our eyes, but through the perspective in the eyes of our heart. Everything that's happened to you up to this point, every hurt, every bit of trauma, every bit of uh, broken relationship, every success, every promotion you've had in your career, every single career uh, victory you've had, you view life through the prism of what your heart has gone through. The past, your pain, your problems, your good days, your bad days, your relationship, your marriage, the way you were raised as a kid, the country in which you were born, the culture in which you lived, all of these things frame how you view everything. And so what he's saying is, boy, you have gone through trauma, you have gone through hurt, you have gone through depression, you have gone through victories, you have gone through all of these different things in your life, and I am praying that you know God first of all, but then that the eyes of your heart, the perspective on which you view life would now be enlightened. It would be opened up. It would become this broad perspective that only Christ can give us. Because when our eyes are open, when they are lightened, what will happen is this, we will see God for who he is, and we find freedom. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Um, in Jesus, we have freedom. Um, you look at every interaction Jesus had in the New Testament, and this is what you'll find. Whenever people find Jesus, they find freedom. Isn't that beautiful? Whenever people find Jesus, they find freedom. Um, in Galilee, early in his ministry, when he encounters a man possessed, he becomes free of that demon. He begins teaching on a hillside, and, and there's a bit of scripture that's recorded in Matthew, and I believe in Mark, where you said, where uh, Mark, uh, who is writing on the behalf of Peter, and then Matthew, who's writing his own account, says something to the effect of, and every person with a disease became healed. And God healed every person with a disease. So everyone that came that had, uh, that had a disease were free from it. 
Uh, there was the man with leprosy, and now he's free from that disease. The paralyzed man is now free from paralysis. Each of his disciples individually were given freedom. Zacchaeus in the tree, my goodness, what an awesome story. Here's this guy who uh, spent his life abusing his own people, and all of a sudden he meets Jesus. He has a meal with Jesus, and the next thing you know, he never went to church. He never sang a worship song. He never, uh, from what we can tell, never attended synagogue, but he had one meal with Jesus. He was introduced to Jesus and all of a sudden finds freedom from that guilt and that shame and he repays every back every person back what he stole the centurion the widow's son the woman at the well over and over and over again God gives freedom now for some reason we don't embrace this idea of God in our life that he's the one that's going to give us freedom it's probably because um we don't trust him to. I mean, uh, saving me from my sins, giving me eternal life, salvation, the cross, I'm all in. But my own burdens, my own brokenness, my hurts, my hang-ups, my sin, my addiction, um, I'm going to try that one on my own. And it's interesting how the things we can't see we are fully willing to trust God with. But that the things that we can put hands and flesh to, we have a hard time relenting control. We have a hard time understanding how he could heal the brokenness, and yet this is what God is in. This is what God is invested in, is to give us freedom. So what would it look like for you to find freedom? What would it look like for you to find freedom in your life? In fact, what area of your life do you need to find freedom? Are there doubts and there fears? Um, is there a perception about who you are? Is it uh, the way that you view yourself and your identity? Is it, um, is, it, uh, is it an addiction? Is it substance abuse? Is it a broken relationship that you keep going back and back to and can't quite figure out why it won't be mended? Where can God provide freedom? Because if he hasn't provided freedom, you probably haven't embraced the gospel yet. In fact, you probably didn't need freedom. If you haven't found freedom, it's probably because you didn't need the gospel in the first place. So where's the area in your life that God can provide freedom? This is going to take an honest look in the mirror. You're going to have to admit to yourself where you're lacking. What part of your life needs freedom? What part of your life is lacking in that area? It's not enough just to know God. Paul says, I'm praying that this journey that you're on becomes uh, something where you identify where you are, but there's also these next steps. So first we come and we get wisdom and revelation and we understand who God is. We know God. We know him in a real and a personal way. Well, if that's true, we know in Scripture that anytime someone had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, when they found and they met Jesus, they also found freedom. So what can you be free from? What would it look like for you to be free from doubt? from fear, from burden, from hang-up. We're going to try to deal with the stuff that's holding us back. Because here's the thing, if you're not experiencing freedom, you are carrying that weight on your own. Now here's the thing about freedom, I got good news and bad news. 
The good news is there is a solution. The bad news is it's very difficult. You know, Scripture gives you, he put a, 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 he set in motion a way for us to find freedom, and it's right there in Scripture. Look at James chapter 5 with me. James chapter 5. We don't preach this verse very often because it is up close and personal. So watch your toes, and let's read James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to whom? Oof. I'm okay with the second part of this verse. I'll pray for you. But James in Scripture is really clear. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So here is the good news and the bad news. We go to God for forgiveness, and we go to one another for healing. Now, most of us are completely comfortable, myself including, going to God for forgiveness. It's the second part where healing is promised that we have a harder time with. And for some of us, you've wondered why you still have the same um, burden that you did when you were a teenager or the same burden you did when you were 10, 15 years ago. Part of the healing process and this brokenness and the sin and the guilt and the shame that we experience is you need people to help you heal within the structure of healthy and strong relationships. So what our church is going to be passionate about is being a church where we live out this authentic faith, where we have healthy and strong relationships, but we give every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. Part of having healthy and strong relationships is right here is that you go to God for forgiveness and that we go to one another for healing. You need people to help you heal. You're going to be afraid to do it. And when you do it, it's going to be hard, scared, difficult. And when, they do, and when you reveal it to someone in the context of a healthy, strong relationship, another brother, sister in Christ who's going to be there, who's going to love you, someone you trust. When you reveal a brokenness and you confess something to them, they're not going to laugh. They're not going to berate you. They're not going to say, oh, my goodness. What's going to happen is you're going to find the love, support, and prayer that Bible promises. Um, I had this odd epiphany while I was studying for this. Um, most of us don't need another sermon, <laughs> which is really awkward for me. This is the majority of what I get paid to do. Most of us don't need another Sunday sermon. Most of us don't need another Bible lesson. Most of you need a person. You need to find a person that you can exercise this with. And what will happen on the other side of the difficulty, the pain, the discomfort, and the unusualness of confessing something is healing. It's interesting, when you go to a doctor for a, um, uh, 
uh, for something in your life, and it's an ongoing condition. How many of you recognize that our brokenness is an ongoing condition, right? I may be good tomorrow, but, I mean, I may be good today, but give me like six minutes. I may completely fall apart. Our brokenness is a long-term condition. So, some of you that have long-term conditions, what do you do? You go to the doctor, and they give you a bottle of pills, and they say, go home and take them all at once. Right? Uh Uh-uh. There's dosing to this, right? They say, you want to take this pill. Now, here's the environment you want to do it in. You're going to need some food. You probably want some water. You want to do it at the beginning of the day or the, right? There's dosing. And you don't take them all at once. You, you dose yourself. And part of what this looks like is not, is not, taking, uh, not taking the burdens of your life and saving them up for when you break down and then all of a sudden all of it gets let out. Because that's painful, right? That's difficult. That's really hard to do. But the beauty of life, the beauty of a church family, the beauty of you and I doing life together is this. I get to call you and say, hey, I need to talk because this week has been particularly rough and I need to talk to someone about something. And there's dosing that happens. And you start doing it regularly. We go to God for forgiveness, but we go to one another for healing. Most of us don't need another Bible lesson. We just need a person. And once we do, once we get to that place where we can get really honest with someone, you're going to discover that there's really healing. There's healing on the other side too. I was talking to someone this week and they were telling me how broken they felt and so how out of place they fit coming to a church because of their brokenness. I got to share with them what we are, which is just a bunch of broken people. Man, if we had the time to share with each other the brokenness, we would probably just uh, breathe a sigh of relief first and then also recognize that we need one another. I can't stress to you enough what this looks like in our lives, the healing that it could provide. Just the willingness to admit that you don't have it all together and you find someone to confess your faults, your sins, pray with someone so that you can experience the real healing that God has intended for you. To know God, to find freedom. So to know God, this is the opportunity for you, maybe for the first time, to know who he is. Man, Moses, uh, in his conversation with God, said, uh, God, who do you want me to tell you? Who are you? Who do you want me to tell the people of Israel who you are? And God responded, I am mercy. I am love. Boy, the opportunity to know God for the first time or maybe for the first time all over again. And then the opportunity to find freedom. These are our two steps we're going to rest with. To find freedom with, from the habit, from the addiction, from the fear, from the doubt, from the laziness, from the apathy that exists. To know God, to find freedom. Maybe you're here somewhere. Maybe you're here somewhere and there's seeds that are just underneath. 
and boy, you're, 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 the, the landscape of your life is like the dry parched land of Death Valley. It's just waiting for a season of seven inches of holy water to come upon you so that those seeds can rise up again. This is what I'm praying for you. Would you bow your heads as I do? We're going to have our heads bowed for a moment. And it gives you some opportunity to just settle here. Where are you? And what's the next step? Where are you, church? Boy, in the next few weeks, I plan on, uh, on sharing so much vision about what our church could be about. But really, our church is made up of people. And each one of us need to identify where we are and what's the next step. So where, where are you? Maybe one of these specifically are, is, is calling to you. Today was not meant to be an inspirational message. It wasn't meant to be something to make you feel good about yourself. It was meant for you to do an, a diagnosis on yourself. Where are you? Are you in one of these two spots? Maybe some of you have been saved and baptized and faithful members of our church for, for decades and for years. And yet, if we're being honest... It's time to know God again for the first time all over again. It's time to know him in a real, personal, intimate way. Not just what I might speak about on Sunday. Not just, my, uh, not just what you've always known intellectually. But our church is going to be a place where not where we just get information about God, but where we see transformation in our hearts. So maybe that's where you're at. And you say, Daniel, man, if I'm... If I'm going to be honest, I need to know God again. My life is different now than when I met him. I, I've lost a loved one since then. I've gained a loved one since then. I've retired since then. I have kids now. My kids are way older now. Whatever that situation, there's life events, there's things that happen to our life that cause us to reevaluate where we are in life. So where are you? Maybe you're there. You need to know God again for the first time. In the coming weeks, we're going to share some, some ways, some opportunities that we have put together to give you the space and the environment to know him better. But it's up to you to recognize where you are. I can teach all I want. I can put, we can put all the Bible studies together all we want. We can do all of that. But there has to be a moment where you understand where you are. So maybe you're there to know God. Maybe some of you are here and, man, you're like, man, I know who he is. I've seen him show up in my life. I've seen him show up in my life 20, 30 years ago. I have a real personal, intimate, intimate relationship with him. When I read scripture, it's his voice in my life. When I pray, I feel like I'm talking to my heavenly dad. I know him. But there's an area in your life where you need to find freedom. There's this doubt that lingers over your heart. There's this fear that creeps up from inside. There's this addiction that has uh, grabbed hold of your life. There's this something in your life that you need to be free from. And you need to find freedom. And this is where you are. And you say, Daniel, this is where I'm at. I, I need to find freedom. Next week, we're going to talk about discovering purpose. We're going to talk about making a difference and I'm going to be honest with you, our church will never make a difference until we know who God is. We will never discover our purpose until we find freedom from the shackles and the burdens and the sin that are plaguing us today. So before we even get there, we have to find where we are. 
If you're in one of these two places, I want to pray for you very specifically. Heavenly Father, as we seek to know who you are and to find freedom, I pray that the next few weeks and and these conversations would not just be another Sunday morning, but that they would actually jar the very course of our life. That all of a sudden we have people in our life that we can confess our faults to and find healing in areas that we have been wounded for years and years and years. I pray that this would be the environment that we create, that people are welcomed into our family as they pursue this idea of knowing God in a real, personal, intimate way. I have a pretty clear vision, Lord, of what you've laid on my heart for this church. And yet I recognize that means nothing without personal transformation happening in our hearts. So I pray for individuals and families today that this would be the beginning. We're going to take just a few moments while the piano's playing to give you a space to have this dialogue with God. And whether it's about knowing God or finding freedom, I want you to take the next few moments to reveal to Him where you believe you are. Tell Him where you are. Tell Him where your heart is at. And ask Him to give you the courage, the boldness, and the wisdom to make the next step. While you do that, I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward, and they're going to help us worship in a few moments. But for all of us, let's take a few moments and have this dialogue, this prayer with God. Heavenly Father, we ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. Father, we pray that our eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in his people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. 
In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.